interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Welcome to Interrupted, the podcast of the West Star Institute, which is dedicated to advancing scholarship on the history and evolution of Christianity while exploring issues that matter to society and culture. Interrupting, enriching, and disturbing conventional religious discourse in the public square. Interrupted brings the expertise of Western scholars, guests, and practitioners to bear on important issues in the world today. Hello, my name is Matt Baker, and in this episode of Interrupted, you'll hear a conversation between me, Interrupted co-host Jordan Miller, and the mighty Mary Jane Rubenstein, who is Professor of Religion and Science in Society at Wesleyan University. Her research unearths the philosophies and histories of religion and science, especially in relation to cosmology, ecology, and space travel. And she's the author of several very good books. You should check those out. Her most recent project is called Astrotopia, The Dangerous Religion of the Corporate Space Race, Uh, that's coming out from University of Chicago Press sometime in the fall, I think. It's available for pre-order, and we'll link to that in the show notes. And so, yeah, we got to talk to her about some of the ideas in that book. Uh, We talk about capitalist goon and transhumanist poster boy Elon Musk, with all respect. We touch on technology, alternative approaches to theological method, interplanetary colonialism, political solidarity across differences, recent events in Ukraine, and more. Uh, Before we get to the conversation, you might be interested to know that Interrupted's very own Jordan Miller, who's also a Westar scholar, as I'm sure you know, will be this month's guest for the Radical Theology Seminar, and will lead a discussion on April 26th on Radical Political Theology. If you haven't heard of the Radical Theology Seminar yet, this is a series of monthly seminar-style discussions led by experts in the field of radical theology. If you're interested in that sort of thing, uh, the cutting edge of theological discourse and engaging with some of the most important contemporary thinkers in the field, uh, I'd encourage you to head over to patreon.com slash radical theology and sign up at the neophyte level for only five bucks. Last announcement, on the following evening, April 27th, the West Star Institute is hosting Dr. Lisa Bowens, Associate Professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. She'll be talking about her book, African American Readings of Paul, Reception, Resistance, and Transformation, which investigates the historical trajectory of how African Americans have understood Paul and utilized his work to resist and protest injustice and racism in their own writings from the 1700s to the mid-20th century. We'll link to where you can register for that in the show notes as well. It's $20 to sign up, and when you do that, you'll receive the recording of the event, uh, as well as an excerpt from the book. All right, without further ado, here is Mary Jane Rubenstein. We have been given the scientific knowledge, the technical ability, and the materials to pursue the exploration of the universe. To ignore these great resources would be a corruption of a God-given ability. My name is Mary Jane Rubenstein. I teach at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. 
um, and have been working for the last while on the fraught intersections of religion and science. Um, I tend in particular to uh, try to attune myself to the places that religion shows up in unexpected places in the sciences. Um, so in cosmology, in astronomy, in astrophysics, um, most recently in the, um, the science and the art and the um, economy and um, warfare of space exploration. Mm -hmm. Nice. It just came to mind just now when when uh, when we spoke last, you you told the story of um, is it like a a live nativity scene and you had to chase a goat across the highway or something like this? Yeah, absolutely. I like that you got excited that I brought that up. (laughs) (laughs) Have there been any goat incidents in the intervening years that we should know about? Um, No, I mean, well, except a a student came to me a couple of days ago. It was so strange. And he was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know why I've, I've, I've just heard about your work. I I don't really know you. I don't know anything, but I'm trying to write a play and I'm, I'm trying to write about, you know, science and religion and how they're similar or different or whatever. And then I had this idea about this goat and I was like, now, hang on. We can either talk about science and religion, which is one thing, and which is fine, but which is kind of boring. Um, or we can talk about goats. And he's like, really? So anyway, th- th- he's now going to write a, a thing about goats. I, I think that goats are pretty generative and and, and pretty exciting, but um, I haven't had too many other, um, you know, live interactions with them. Okay, so, fair. I mean, you don't have to stay with this line of questioning, but <laughs> have you seen there's goat yoga? Oh my gosh. I want so desperately to do goat yoga. And I had actually, (laughs) I was planning on it and then COVID hit. And then there was no more goat yoga. I don't know if they were worried that we were going to give the goats COVID or that like what, what the issue was. Um, but, um, I would, I would be, if anybody has a good venue for goat yoga, I'm, I, it's, it remains one of my, um, desiderata really. I'd I'd, I'd like to get there. There's a, a family farm, not too far from me. Um, that, basically lost a lot of business due to COVID. Um, but because they had goats and they have lots of outdoor space, they started doing goat yoga on the farm as a way to supplement their income where people could be distanced and outside and whatnot. And do it outside. You know what? I completely take it back. I absolutely have had a goat. Experience. I suspected as much. Yeah. There's this other farm in um, kind of Wales or something like that. They also were losing all this money to COVID. So they decided that they would do um, goat Zoom bombings. And so you can say so you just have like, a, like an apartment meeting, right? And you you organize your department meeting and you've asked everybody to come at 1.10 PM or everybody zooms in. And then at like 1.13, another person joins and it's a goat. <laughs> and the and the goat just sort of like hangs out there. Um, and 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 the you know, the camera is trained on the goat. And uh, and when people are like, what is this goat doing? Why is there a goat here? The goat texts and like chats and says, like, don't be rude. I'm as much of this department as anybody else. Like it, it's <laughs> um, so yeah, so I did I did do that once, and that was that was a tough That's fun. They're even it's cheap too, and they're like they'll they'll be up in the middle of the night in Wales if you want them to, they'll they'll come in at any time. Yeah, I'm sure that whoever's in charge of productivity was not happy about that, but it sounds, it sounds like a good time. I think the first time I um, saw you speak was at one of the Drew interdisciplinary colloquium events right. uh, and wasn't like the title or subtitle of your paper about goat gods at the time. It yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. I was trying to, um, I was trying to connect uh, Pan, that particular goat God and Christ um, and draw them together uh, to try to begin to get at the panic that, Christian philosophers seem always to display over uh, pantheism. 
towards the end of the, our conversation the last time, I remember you mentioned, well, I, I asked you what you were you know, thinking about working on next, what the next project was. I remember being a little bit surprised actually when you said you were you know, thinking about space exploration and you know, colonizing Mars and that kind of thing. But since, of course, I've, I've read at least this chapter out of uh, image and makes a lot more sense now. Um, and yeah, like I just saw yesterday, there's the, the monogram forthcoming. So that's really exciting. Just out of curiosity, what, what are people going to find in the longer version that, that they don't get in the chapter and image? Right. So the chapter and image was an effort to think about, about images of the earth, about the way that we picture earth and particularly picture it from space and what we want from those space photographs um, and how what we want from those space photographs peace and into war and into factionalism and rivalries and things like that and maybe into capitalism um, is completely contradicted by what it is that we tend to do with those space photographs. Um, and I guess that the new book, which I'm calling Astrotopia, uh, reverses the gaze a bit and comes back down to earth and looks out at the stars, at the cosmos again, um, but at a shorter distance from like the multiverse book, um, which was looking out really, really far. <laughs> this one looks a little, a little closer. Um, and what this one is doing is trying to get at fantasies of better living off earth, better living through space. The story seems to be going that we have reached an end to the uh, possibilities of infinite growth and infinite expansion that um, capital has promised us. So like really interestingly, these entrepreneurs who are at the, at the forefront of our effort to colonize space are recognizing what all of our anti-capitalists are, which is that like we have reached real limits to growth. We can't keep doing this anymore. But rather than saying, along with the critics we know well, um, therefore we have to live differently, what they say is, all right, so how are we going to live like this forever? The only way is we need more space. We need more room. We need somewhere else. Um, and so we're going to go outwards. There are a couple different models for this. Uh, with Elon Musk, we're going to colonize Mars. With Jeff Bezos, we're going to um, install rotating space cylinders kind of closer to Earth that we're all going to be living on. Um, so there are different ways of going about this. But um, in both cases, we need a frontier to keep on living in the uh, extractive and commercialized way that we do. Um, so what this book tries to do is um, tell a kind of longer story about the history and the philosophy and the theology and the mythology of the European expansion that um, produced the Americas as we now know them, that insisted themselves across the whole continent um, in the westward expansion, and that's now um, sort of lifting itself off Earth into outer space. The idea is that this new chapter of the space race is a, a like an energetic extension of the project that opened in the late 15th century and colonized the Americas. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, for how modern this story is, it, it's almost a tale as old as time, right? Because yeah. as you explained, there's this correlation to um, imperialism in the same logic, these um, sort of heavenly inclinations, the will to dominate and so on. These things seem to animate the space race just as much as, as they have in the past. Um, and I don't know if when I was reading this, I was like, I found it a little bit depressing to see how, how this pattern just reemerges over and over again, this sort of pathological quest for mastery. And it's always done in the language of, you know, somehow making the world a better place, bringing about justice or even, you know, even saving the world. And, 
yeah, sometimes I'm just tempted to think that's baked in and there's nothing we can do about it. Um, and then I get down on myself for being too, uh, you know, fatalistic and pat passive. And then on the other part, I was like, well, what are we going to do? Let, all right, let's tear the whole fucking thing down. But all these different positions that I keep kind of circling around all share a, a, uh, sort of apocalyptic vision. Is it something that you think about? Are there, are there better options, um, mm -hmm. than the kind of techno optimism that you critique in the book or, or the pessimism of like a, of of a Calvin Warren or other kinds of pessimists. Yeah. So in the, um, in the image chapter, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I really end in a, on a pretty dismal note. I can't see a way out. Everything looks pretty, pretty terrible. And I actually think that the, that Afro-pessimist theorists um, have a good way of at least inhabiting that refusal to take refuge in a bright, shiny future somewhere. Um, so I think that that's, that's actually quite useful, even though it's uh, dismal. In the new book, I, I try to resist just ending there, even though I think it's an important place to be, um, and look also to counter-futural narratives, um, particularly in uh, Afrofuturisms and indigenous futurisms, particularly in science fiction that uh, imagines ways of living either on Earth or in fact elsewhere um, that would, would do things differently. I think part of the reason that I'm Part of the reason that I've had to write about this is that I've been just so astonished by it. As as you've been saying, Matt, like the 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 oldness of it and the unreconstructedness of it and the recalcitrance of it. It's just like, are we really doing this again? Like, are we really replaying? Could it? Is it possible? I mean, every single course that any of my undergrads takes dismantles this narrative. Um, and here we are just advancing it without any kind of self-critical gesture at all, um, except to say like, oh, well, we should have some black astronauts or something like that. I mean, it's just like absolutely disgusting, right? Um, we should have some indigenous astronauts. These are, these, are the, these are the ideas. These are the big ideas. We're going to throw some folks of color on the rockets and then we'll be fine. I, I've been just appalled by, again, the sort of just untrammeled reassertion of of global mastery on now a cosmic scale. And this has been a large part of the reason that I felt like I couldn't not write this book and the, you know, part of a book that came before it. Um, but there are ways if you attend in particular to fiction in particular to kinds of fiction that often don't make it into, you know, the canon of, of, of literature ways of just of, of doing things differently, of inhabiting worlds differently, of building worlds differently. Um, and I know that it is probably not going to do much <laughs> to do such imaginings, um, but I think that it, it's still important to hold out the possibility um, and to insist, in fact, that there are other ways to do the things and we don't need to do them this way. And in the meantime, to call out the utter hypocrisy, as again, you were saying that, of um, pretending that the only only way to say save humanity or save the planet or save whatever it is we want to save is to frack the moon and mine asteroids and open up a brilliant new economy in outer space. Oh yeah, what was that recent movie that touched on that? Like it was um, on Netflix um, where they're going to mine the uh, meteor. Did you see that one? Yeah, I, I keep not seeing it because I'm so scared. It's um, it's the, maddening. You're going to love it. I know, I know, I know. It's uh, up in the air. Or, that's it. That's it. Um. 
no, I haven't yet watched it, but this is, but that, I mean, it's, it's integral to the whole plan. And it's, and this is not, and again, another thing that makes this chapter such a straightforward extension of European imperialism is that what we've got is national interests being heavily supplemented and subsidized by private interests. Um, and the only way to get private interests to bolster our efforts or like, you know, nationally based efforts and internationally based efforts in outer space is to promise them a decent return on their investments. And the only way to promise them a decent return on their investments is to say there are gold, there's gold in those asteroids. We have the right and the ability um, to take those resources, uh, to sell those resources, to use those resources. They are resources, right? That this is already a this is already a, a metaphysical uh predication that they're resources to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um everything, everything, everything hinges on on mining the asteroids. The stuff that you were just saying around the uh, speculative fiction that isn't necessarily in the canon and kind of how that supplements your understanding of these things got me thinking about um, the excerpt of the new book that's in Metopolis and the stuff that you say in there about utopianism and no place and kind of the, the critical edge that you used to talk about that. But there's also kind of a utopian vision in a lot of that literature as well. Um, I'm thinking uh, not in terms of literature, but um, kind of experimental projects like the the Earthship project in Taos, New Mexico, for instance, where it's an attempt to like do the terraforming thing, um, but here on Earth and, you know, creating utopian community. Um, I'm, I'm, anyway, I'm just kind of struck by that, that tension about good utopia, bad utopia. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, no, you're right. Just to some extent, I'm trying to, um, unseat the utopianism of Musk and Bezos by means of like counter utopianisms. Absolutely. I don't think, I, I don't think it's possible to demonize utopianism or heterotopianism or right as a genre, um, because I think it's so important to do the work of imagining what an ideal society would look like if you could find an ideal society. Um, the difference is that the utopian literature that's halfway decent tends to recognize the boundaries of its own self-construction and tends to realize that it necessarily involves dystopian elements in it and to get clear about what those things are, right? We can have this kind of society, but it means we have to establish this order of secret social scientists who like every once in a while kill somebody who falls out of the vision or like, like there's a, you can see where the edges are um, in a way that the unself-aware utopian will not let you see the edges, right? It's just 72 degrees all the time on Bezos's rotating shopping malls in space. It's perfect. And no mosquitoes. And no mosquitoes. Won't it be fantastic? Won't it be fantastic? Whereas when you look at Ursula Le Guin's rendition of this kind of world, she does it in the 70s. She <laughs> shows what it's going to look like. And there are no mosquitoes and it's 72 degrees all the time. You come to realize really quickly what the problems are of leaving out the mosquitoes, right? So you can see the costs of utopia, I think, in um, in fiction in ways that the unselfconscious messianism that we're hearing these days doesn't, doesn't allow us to see. Yeah. And to return to Warren, like you were saying, the sort of uh, certain varieties of pessimism are a good antidote to that, or at least help to kind of push back against that kind of optimism. But that, that point you're making about counter-utopianism brought to mind something that you said in there about, I think it was something like, maybe a better world isn't possible. But literally the day after I was reading that, I started reading this little um, fragments of an anarchist anthropology by Graeber. 
I read this little bit where he says the unavailability of absolute knowledge is what makes a commitment to optimism a moral imperative. I'm not sure that I'd necessarily side with him. I'm just kind of bringing it in for the for the sake of discussion. So what's the question? Should we be optimists? I guess so. <laughs> so here's the thing. I am um, drawn to and indebted to Afro-pessimism as a philosophical school. I am drawn to and indebted to Afrofuturism as an artistic project, um, even more so than a philosophical school, right? Um, and I, it doesn't feel like too much of a conflict to me somehow. Like I, I am equally, I am, I don't know equally in any kind of numeric sense, but I am, I am, I am equally drawn to these, to these schools because I think it is equally important to undermine philosophically the promises of say liberal democracy, representationalism, um, rationality, um, the human, the humane, the, um, which is the work of, of Afro-pessimism and crucial artistically to imagine conditions under which it might be possible to do so. Um, but those do feel like different genres to me, right? I think it is, I think it is a sign of something that Afro-pessimism tends to be a philosophical school and Afrofuturism tends to be an aesthetic embodiment and um, mode of artistic creation. So for what that's worth, I, I so maybe that's it. I, I, um, I think I, I tend to feel like a philosophical pessimist and, uh, and an aesthetic optimist. <laughs> that makes any sense. I can dig it. I mean, I appreciate this sort of parsing out along lines of the genre. That's kind of helpful. I keep hearing you uh, touch on energy in various ways. Energy seems like the big challenge for most of this stuff anyway, um, both in terms of uh, how to continue living on earth in a way that isn't, you know, needlessly destructive, but also if we were to try to go somewhere else, um, energy is the main, main challenge there. And it, I, I started thinking about uh, Clayton Crockett's work on energy and chi and energy as spirit. I'm wondering if you could just tease out some of the um, kind of energy and religious stuff going on in this project. And I don't know if you know that Clayton's got a, a book coming out with Columbia. Like it's like the theology of energy book. It's going to be, I, I don't know if you've already talked to him about this or, um, but I think it's going to, it's, it's masterful. It's, it's, it's like exactly what we've been waiting for from Clayton Crockett about that's like, so he's really the guy to talk about, um, you know, constructively about the possibilities of energy um, and what it is and what we, um, what we could possibly do with it differently. Um, so Jeff Bezos takes his start from the energy crisis. Again, I, I tend to focus on this, these sort of twin or sort of mirrored messiahs of, uh, of Musk and Bezos. And Musk is really worried that we're, that an asteroid's going to come get us. Like he's that guy. He's like, we are going to get wiped out like the dinosaurs An asteroid is after us. Um, everything's going to end at some point, even near future, far future, who knows, but we have to have some kind of backup plan. Bezos is much more, uh, critical of the way we are living. It is much more of a, um, like it's a different, it's a different kind of theology. It's not like something out there is going to get us. It's like, we are creating conditions under which that are going to make it impossible for us to live. So Bezos will say, 
look, we're using too much energy. There is absolutely nothing we can do to sustain the growing energetic needs of the overdeveloped world, the developing world. Um, we, there's just not enough for this many hospitals, this many schools, this many internets, this many refrigerators, this many whatever it is. And then he makes this crucial move. So actually both both Bezos and Musk do this. They, they both have a, like a, a little possibility of a counter way of thinking that they both absolutely gloss over and then they go on to the next one. For Musk, what it is, is look, an asteroid's going to come get us or like something's going to render us extinct, maybe nuclear war. He doesn't talk about climate change because he participates in it too much. So he doesn't want to sorry about climate change. Um, an asteroid's going to get us and either we'll all go extinct, which I know you can agree is a terrible idea, or we have to be on the planet. But one, if, if one is like parsing the argument philosophically, one wants to pause and say like, hang on a second, you have not told us why it is inadmissible for the species to go extinct. Every other species on earth has gone or will eventually go extinct. Why is humanity so different from every other species? What is it about humanity that deserves preferential treatment? Like, we, we would at least have to, to defend this as a, as, a, as, a, as a premise, right? He does not. So that's, that's the little uh, exit clause that he does not ponder. And then we're back on the Musk train and then we're all living on Mars. For Bezos, what he says is we could put solar panels on every possible surface and we're still not going to get enough energy for what we need. So either we have to use less energy, which I know you think is completely inadmissible, or we're going to have to build rotating space colonies. And for with, with him, you want to sort of, again, the, the philosopher wants to stop and say like, wait, well, hang on a second. What's wrong with that little glossed over exit clause with the, 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 the possibility that we could perhaps use less energy? Um, and he says, well, it would mean, um, it would mean rationing, which means unfreedom, but like, you know, he's not really concerned about freedom. Like that's not the problem. Um, it would mean uh, stasis. And we, you know, we just hate stasis because forward is where we go and we, we can't do anything but move forward. Um, but mostly he says it would be boring. It would be boring to have to use less energy. And he says, I want my grandchildren, my great grandchildren to use more energy than I do. And that seems to me to be <laughs> the crux of the issue. How is it that any of us could get ourselves into a situation where we dream that our descendants are using even more energy than we do? Right? Like, how could you even get yourself into that place where that becomes the desire? More energy, more and more and more um, energy understood in, in the sense of, you know, fossil fuel powered things that light up, not energy in the sense of some charism that makes you a really good public speaker or something like that. Um, so I don't, I don't know really what to say, uh, Jordan, about your wonderful question, except that it's, it, it seems a disordered desire, the desire for, if I'm, if I'm, you know, thinking in my theology self, my theological self, um, the desire for more and more and more energy for more power, right? More stuff. To, it makes um, makes us uh, into megalomaniacs of some sort. I don't know. I've just come from finishing the um, Avatar, the last airbender series with my four-year-old who's like super into airbending. What do you, you um, think of it? I've, I've oh, seen it. I, I'm not afraid to admit Oh my God. Like, this is the first thing where my, my partner and I were like, we realized that whenever he was watching one of the episodes with one of us and the other one didn't get to watch, we were like, wait, what happened? What happened? So we made the rule where actually we all, we would wait for the two-year-old to go to bed. And then the three of us would sit down and watch it because like, we couldn't not, I mean, this is, this doesn't usually happen, right? With kids TV shows. Um, I think it's phenomenal. I think it's phenomenal for a number of reasons. Um, not least among them that uh, Aang finds a way 
despite what everybody has told him, all of his vision quests of his past avatars, everybody tells him, you're going to have to kill the Fire Lord, every single person. And he's like, I don't, I can't. And then they tell him, you know, arise, you have to put away your personal merit. You have to, they give him like every, the Gita, they give like drag out every argument in the book. And um, even like the Bonhoeffer thing, right? You might have to do a terrible thing. So then, you know, just forsake your own soul so that other people can live. And he figures out a way not to kill the Fire Lord. This is amazing. But when I think about Jeff Bezos saying, I want my descendants to use more energy. Like I can only see him as the fire Lord being like more power, more like why, for what? To have more devices that fuel more devices. Like what's the, what is it for? Um, So there's got to be some way of just asking what it is we want all this power for. Like we can't possibly need more power, but um, I don't know, Jordan, does that come anywhere close to getting into the realm? Yeah, absolutely. It does. Um, I guess part of what I'm thinking about is the um, another side of techno futurism and and, uh, kind of the the people for whom escape from Earth means mental uploading. Um, You know, that that there's this um, almost kind of neo uh, platonic thing happening there where we all become part of the overmind together. Mm -hmm. Um, And that this is a decidedly materialist thing happening. Um, and that energy seems to be, you know, a major component of the framing for how it's supposed to work and the problems that need to be overcome. Um, and I was just, I'm just trying to think through in that materiality of it, there is still this fundamentally theological desire and expression happening. Uh, and I, I don't, I guess for myself, I'm wondering if energy is the location for like how to start thinking about that, or if that is in fact uh, a useful way to, um, to try to imagine what Bezos and Musk and et cetera are, are up to. Yeah, that's interesting. So I have tended to locate the, the, theolo- the crux of the theological issue with both Bezos and Musk in the narrative of disaster and redemption that they're selling. Um, this world is coming to an end. There is another world. Another world is possible. Follow me and I will take you to this other world that you have never seen. It seems totally impossible. Yes, it is a materialist afterlife, but it's just as impossible seeming as any kind of heaven we've been sold. So that's that tends to be where I've hooked it in this um, messianic um, disaster and redemption narrative that even makes that Nietzschean move of the move that Nietzsche criticized, not the move that he made, of making the disaster worse in order to intensify the right. Like they're both literally making the planet uninhabitable in order to, to, to declare the planet uninhabitable and to say that we've got to go somewhere else, right? Um, so that's where I've held it. But I like the I like the lens of, of energy as a, as a possible other way to, to like intensify this uh, as, a, as, a, as some kind of theological crisis. Um, and it, it may be that that would be a way to see it in a kind of first order way as a theological crisis. I think I've been looking at in a second order way as a theological, like they are behaving theologically here, right? But I'm not proclaiming it myself a theological crisis. I think if I were Clayton, I would say it would and I'd go by means of energy or something like that. Um, on the on the mental uploading business, you're right that this is a very materialist enterprise. We are going to put colonies in outer space and put bodies on the colonies. We are going to send bodies to Mars to be exploded and die there, and right? Um, but for Musk in particular, 
all of that physical material labor is in service of ultimately of a totally immaterial project of immortality of like silicon immortality of of uh, like uploaded consciousness and things like that. So the problem for Musk is that the asteroid might hit before we figure out how to upload consciousness and resurrect Musk forever. That's the problem. So Mars is like a materialist means toward this immaterialist end of disembodied immortal consciousnesses forever. Which is also a theological problem, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I I didn't realize that was ultimately the goal for Musk. I've always thought of oh, him as, yeah. you know, yeah. creating a terraformed Mars where we can all live under glass together. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. He, I, I think, I think that this is just a means of sustaining the species until we figure out how to make ourselves immortal. You should probably just watch more Black Mirror. There are some terrifying examples of what that could look like. Yeah, right. Well, this is what was that? There was that amazing. Um, that amazing tweet a couple months ago, <laughs> some some science fiction fiction author saying, um, you know, in my book I invented the terror nexus as a cautionary tale, and then the tech company says, like, at last we have succeeded in creating the terror nexus from the great book. Don't create the terror nexus. That's amazing. This. Striking lack of um, irony, or sense of irony, or sense of humor, or um, like just basic hermeneutical capacity, um, when it comes to some of these these tech startups who um, think that they have found in what ought to be, you know, the cautionary language of science fiction, some sort of blueprint for doing things. ask a maybe boring question it's sort of a scholastic question i guess it kind of parallels well not parallels exactly but it's a similar analysis to the one that you make in pantheologies where you kind of go through the different options within pantheism for negotiating the one and the many and then and then here you're telling a very different story but you make uh outline different ways of of thinking about the world and you talk about the difference between whole earth and one earth and i was wondering if maybe you could say something about that that difference, but then kind of drawing in this uh, larger theme uh, that's that shows up in your work in different ways with the one and the many. What's the position you want to stake out there, and why? What's important right. about that? Uh, okay, so there's this guy Dennis Cosgrove. He um, has like the definitive article on the Apollo space photographs. He has figured out the kind of camera that they were taken on and the sort of lighting and the blah, blah, blah. He's, he's a geographer. He's just got the whole damn thing. He reads the images gorgeously, tells us what we're seeing in those continents, those like brown and blue and green things with the little clouds. And what Cosgrove says and what we all know is that the images of the earth from space, which, you know, the three of us grew up with, but which apparently were um, utterly disorienting to people who had never seen the earth from space, kicked off um, famously, infamously, uh, the environmental movement, right? Look at that gorgeous blue-green orb. It's so delicate. It's so perfect. It's so beautiful. It looks so different from like the infinite darkness of space. It's just poised there in this fragile way. We have to take care of it, right? This is the ethos that Cosgrove refers to as the whole earth ethos um, from the whole earth catalog. Um, and, and, you know, what, two years after the Earthrise photo, which was a little before the Earthrise is the one of the, the earth kind of coming up over the surface of the moon. 
and the other, which is just named a number, um, that just like stark globe that you look at, basically came out the same year as the first uh, the first Earth Day. The idea was that once we had finally seen the Earth like whole and entire, in the in the words of one American poet. Um, we would realize that our, you know, our petty wars were absurd and that there was no reason to be fighting and there was no reason to be destroying the earth because it was the only place we had ever lived. It was the only place we could live. Carl Sagan, pale blue dot, like everybody who's ever lived is going to live here. It's rare. It's important. We're all going right. to. Um, as we know, though, that is not the way the last 60 years have gone, right? We haven't suddenly be become great stewards of our earth. We haven't suddenly ended wars. We haven't suddenly reversed the course of climate change. We've accelerated all of it. And what Cosgrove points out is that the same visual imagery that all of the, you know, the poets and the romantics were saying would give rise to the sense that we need to care for the earth um, also gave rise at the same time to the corporate effort to dominate the earth, to globalize the earth. And this is what he calls the one world mentality. Um, so for Cosgrove, we're kind of stuck between seeing uh, the earth as, as a whole earth and on the one hand that we need to care for, um, and as a one world on the other that we can dominate through particularly te telecommunications technologies um, and through global capital. Um, one thing that Benjamin Lazier says, is it Lazier? Is it Lazier? Is it, I, I'm going to say Lazier, um, but I do not know, um, whom I have corresponded with, but I've never asked him how you pronounce his name. One thing that he suggests is that it's likely that these are just two sides of the same coin, that the kind of romantic vision of a whole earth that we should love and the sinister technocratic vision of a uh, one world that we can dominate through global capital are just two sides of the same vision. And thank you so much, Matt. My sense is that we, the, the, the problem is the vision of oneness in the first place. And it has always been my sense that as beautiful, romantic, seemingly unitive as it is, the effort to gather up all difference into a vision or image of oneness is going to do a ton of violence, um, even if you don't expect it to in a whole lot of different ways. So yeah, I think that there's a problem in trying to gain that masterful vision of the whole world in the first place and think that in that sense, the example of the Apollo photographs um, is a really good demonstration, not of the um, ontological falsity of oneness, but of the just ethical dangers of it. Right. I am still not in a position to say uh, that I can say ontologically that all things are many instead of one or all things are one. Or just, I, just, I can't imagine how you could get yourself into this sort of place. But pragmatically, ethically, um, I, I think it's a very dangerous position to take up as, as, again, romantic and beautiful as I understand it can sometimes look. Mm -hmm. You said something very similar last time we spoke about, like, I don't know if reality is one or three or seven or 16. It was almost like just a throwaway line, but for some reason it, it just... It stuck with me and uh, it got me thinking about how to do theology. I was thinking about theology and how, how it's methodologically often assumes that reality is one. And this is just kind of a poorly articulated and open question that maybe you can uh, help me with is what would uh, theology look like if it had a sort of like polytheistic methodology or a 
I'm not even sure that's the right term, but. Um, so this is easier for me than it is for proper theologians, because I, again, kind of hover over theology without, or at least I try <laughs> to hover over theology without actually doing it. So it's possible to see multiple constructions of reality, right? And multiple visions of it that do not ever add up to one um, much more easily than it is to say like, okay, but how are we to think about reality itself? Right? Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm not particularly interested in thinking about reality itself. I'm very interested in thinking about the way that people think about reality. And that like, right. that's a defensive um, meta move that I just can't not make that. I, right? um, but if one were going to do it, one would want, first of all, to suspend at least for a moment, the idea that for example, the various theologies and philosophies of the world are different paths up the same mountain, right? That's that's a, a um, monistic vision of, mm-hmm. uh, of, of reality that I think undergirds a lot of our liberal theologies. And I understand it and it makes sense. We're all trying to get to the same place. And honestly, if I were talking to, you know, a church group and a temple group and a like a, and a group of Muslims all in the same place. I'd probably do that sort of thing just for the sake of right having a way to talk, right? Um, but as a uh, place from which to make a some sort of program for future action, I don't think it's a good idea because you're always drawing everybody into somebody's construction of reality. Um, this is Tomoko Masuzawa shows this in her book, The Invention of World Religions, right? That like. The very process that seemed to open out the category of religion to all of these different religions, this plurality of religions, did so by constructing all of the world religions on a Protestant model. That was what you what you lost. Um, so I worry about the approach to pluralism that draws everybody together as, again, like different paths up the same mountain, because um, if you really get inside different worldviews, you realize that it's, it's for some people, it's a mountain for some people. We're not even talking about a mountain or there are numerous mountains or there, right. Um, this is part of the reason I really like the work of Eduardo uh, Viveros de Castro, who says that for the particular American Indian populations that he studies, it's not the case that you have a lot of different cultures describing differently, the same reality, but that actually cultures use very similar terms to talk about totally different realities. Um, and th- so this is, I think, a really interesting starting point for, for theology, well, for anything, but also for theology, right? And I think on a, on a very practical level, what it would mean is allowing ourselves, I'll put myself here, to learn about worldviews views of the sacred, views of the ordinary, views of um, the beginning of things, the end of things, without trying to map them onto one another um, and without trying to reconcile them, without trying to oppose them, without trying to, um, but to allow each of them to form their own worlds. Um, And then um, from there to ask about possible concrete political solidarities between them. So for example, there is a mountain, big island of Hawaii, Mount Akea. Um, I don't remember if I talk about this in the in the image piece, but there's this um, huge telescope that NASA and the University of Hawaii have been trying to build on Mount Akea for years now, the 30 meter telescope. It is actually the 14th telescope to be constructed on Mauna Kea. Um, And uh, indigenous elders and activists and youth um, have said at this point, you know what, you've got 13 telescopes, please don't build a 14th one. This is a sacred mountain. And what we mean by a sacred mountain is it's our ancestor. 
this mountain is our ancestor. Um, and we are asking you not to do us, not just the disservice, but the violence of taking more land, destroying more um, animal populations and vegetable populations by putting another telescope up here. You don't need it. You don't want um, the uh, protectors of the mountain have been incarcerated. They've been, um, when I think about what it would take to gather together a group of people who can stand up, for example, for Mauna Kea in solidarity with it, um, the first thing that seems important to say is it would not require your or my somehow claiming that mountain, right? Um, we don't have to say, oh, yes, the mountain is my ancestor too. I am Mauna Kea. I am. It is. It is right. It 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 created me or something like that because it didn't. It's, it's not. It's not our mountain. We don't live in relation to it. We are not stewards of it, and yet we can appreciate the worldview that claims that kind of inheritance and that kind of ancestry without taking it. Um, and so that feels like a kind of pluralist approach to theology to me. Um, to be able to recognize on its own terms. Um, what is sacred within a particular worldview um, without having to square it with one's own worldview, and which is to say without having to, to take it or to claim it um, or to, um, right, we would call it appropriate it right now. Um, so, so and, and, and again, so on the one hand, we're not trying to declare what is sacred for everybody in the whole world, because I don't think this is possible and I don't understand why it is desirable. On the other hand, um, just because the mountain is sacred to the Kanaka of Hawaii and not necessarily to like MJ of New Jersey, um, that also doesn't mean that I have no concern for it, right? Or that I can't speak up um, in, in solidarity with the protectors of the mountain. So it's like some kind of position. This is, you know, this is, I think, why Catherine Keller likes to go for the term multiplicity instead of plurality, right? For her, Plurality means a kind of unrelated slew of different stuff that has nothing to do with anything, right? And unity, we know what unity is, or oneness, we know what oneness is. Um, but multiplicity can account for relationships among things without drawing them all into oneness or announcing that they have absolutely nothing to do with one another. Yeah, no, thanks. And I, you mentioned De Castro in there, and, and it just made me think like, yeah, maybe a way into that kind of approach would be um, to think to think about a, a theology as anthropology or, or, or one that would at least take more of its cues from anthropology, not, not the sort of yeah. like old school 19th century style, but like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That, that we need to be grounded in the, in the, in the particular worldview and make statements and form our understanding from there rather than beginning from a sense of reality and fitting everybody else into it or beginning from a sense of what a person is and fitting everybody into it. Right. Cause we, we know that this, this changes too. Mm -hmm. um, as a kind of, Aside question, the tone of your project having to do with um, kind of disaster and future and nostalgia, the image of the book cover, um, just that tone got me thinking about how that's also repeated in what's going on right now in, in Ukraine and Russia um, around nuclear power and nuclear war, um, a repetition of the Cold War in a certain kind of way. And so, you know, this is a just a very tangential thing, but I was just wondering if you had any thoughts you'd like to share about Ukraine. Oh, God, I I wish I had any thoughts about Ukraine. I really wish I did other than a fervent um, 
It, I, <laughs> I kind of find it too heartbreaking even to know how to talk about it. And I'm, this won't be useful for you, but I have, um, long thought myself an extreme pacifist. Um, this situation is ex- sort of uh, under underscoring for me um, my hatred of war and violence. I'm finding like I've got I've got more kids than I used to, and thinking about the precarity in which um, kids on on the Ukrainian side of the border are now being um, relocated. It's just I it's like I find it just totally unbearable. I don't even know how to. I don't even know how to think it because it just hurts too much, but I apologize. I wish I were. <laughs> I wish yeah, no, I, that's, that's totally fair. It's a, it's an overwhelming situation. Um, yeah, you know, what, what you were describing with Hawaii before about an ethic of solidarity yeah. um, seems to me to be really strong um, in, in how people are talking about Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know, I've, I've been struck by that uh, over the last few weeks. I have to. It has felt like there's um, more to agree about, at least um, when it comes to when it comes to this particular war, but like less to do about it. Right. It's just it's so it feels like a um, I don't know. I have a kind of ambivalent relationship to Timothy Morton's work, but um, mm. that notion of hyper objects of co-creating systems that we then can't control um, seems so powerfully in effect right now. Like, what is anybody supposed to do? Like, if I Venmo a hundred dollars to my friend who's collecting money for Ukraine, is this going to help? So there's, there's the solidarity and I appreciate the solidarity. It's just, I, 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 I I don't. um, It's not like there's a logging road. We can all go and blockade together. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, we could all buy tickets to Ukraine and buy guns. Just saying. And then we have to buy guns. And then and then the, you know, the radical pacifist in me is has problems too. Then I, I reach the limits of my pacifism and then I get really concerned about that. Yeah. Well, Jordan converted me. Well, I was never a radical pacifist, more of a convenient pacifist, I suppose. And Jordan converted you to Oh, considering the possible usefulness and ethical nature of violence in certain yeah. instances. Yeah. Yeah. I I I absolutely hear and understand that it just feels so so hard to think or to inhabit yeah i hear you that's a tough question to end on i was wondering if i could return to something related to the uh, indigenous thread and this isn't my question i was i was talking to a friend yesterday mentioned to him that i'd be speaking to you and i was like what do you want to ask her this is what he wrote um this is a little bit more um a question about technology as such which I don't know if it's something you take up in the in the book. Do you talk about technology? You mean like in a Heideggerian sense, technology, like yeah. theoretical? Yeah. I mean, like more of a kind of Donna Haraway way about technology. Okay, we'll, fair. We can see. Let me know. Yeah. Well, he he writes this. There's a theory out there which posits that one big difference between various indigenous and colonialist Western societies is the lack of sophisticated technology in indigenous societies. Uh, some speculate that this is because of the indigenous values that are a product of their mythologies. For example, indigenous societies who might be more animist and understand humans as interrelated, quote, technologies of the earth, who are not fully free, but rather constrained by the multiple relations and roles, which essentially constitute them, that these things prohibited them from developing technologies detrimental to their life web. All right, here's the question. He was wondering what you think about, first of all, about that theory. And then he also asks, if we were to subscribe to that kind of uh, indigenous animistic pantheistic, omni-relation, whatever you want to call it, uh, worldview, uh, what do you think that would mean for the design, development, and adoption of new technologies? Wow. Okay. 
Um, it sounds like from, that your like your friend was putting scare quotes in all the right places. Um, so I, I'm not attributing this view to your friend. I'm attributing sure. it to the you know the language itself. Um, if techne means like know-how or power to right, then there is nothing unsophisticated about indigenous technologies. Um, indigenous technologies tell communities how to live, how to thrive, how to grow, how to grow things, how to make things, how to create things, how to sustain things, how to reuse things. Um, this is, these are, these are all technologies. Um, if I had to participate in an admittedly losing game of distinguishing Western and indigenous technologies along these lines, um, I would probably say something like um, the West, for very complicated reasons, gave itself license um, beginning really in earnest in the 17th century um, to develop technologies with an aim toward gaining power over the earth as distinct from receiving power from the earth or developing power with the earth. So maybe Jordan, this is a way to sort of think about energy, right? To think about the way that we think about energy. And suddenly the earth became um, a set of resources on the one hand, an impediment on the other, um, something to be uh, to be used, to be exploited, to be dominated, to be um, rather than a teacher, rather than a co-creator, rather than a... Um, so gosh, you know, my, my like counter utopian notion of learning to live in less destructive ways and to develop new technologies uh, would be something like developing those sorts of technologies that work with earth mm -hmm. rather than against it rather than right with and through and by means of um, rather than rather than uh, as a means of gaining uh, gaining mastery or power over it. Um, and I think that the thing that I mourn so thoroughly in the our, our new approach, which is an old approach to outer space, uh, is that it's we're, we're now going to take the same approach that the you know seventeenth century Europe decided to take toward Earth, and we're now going to extend it to the moon and to Mars and to asteroids. Now these are our new resources. These are the new things to be conquered. Even from, you know, from the 1950s, when we first started thinking about going into space, um, the headlines were all like, man, will conquer Earth soon. And this, this notion of conquest, of conquering. Um, and I, I do not want to romanticize in this particular way or really in any way, you know, all indigenous nations throughout time, blah, 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 like there was no war, like there was no rivalry, like there was no violence, like there's, you know, nothing that one might might object to. But the notion that uh, it's appropriate to dominate the place that you live seems to be a terrible idea to me. And we know from numerous indigenous communities that there are other, other ways to think technologically. Um, and that doesn't mean giving up technolo technology. It means thinking of, again, technology as with rather than against. Mm -hmm. You got anything else, Jordan? I don't. I think that was fantastic. Yeah, it's great. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this conversation. Yeah. Uh, do you want to say anything else about your forthcoming book or anything else that you have in the works? Oh, well, I mean, I'd love to hear from anybody who's got any thoughts about this, but I'm thinking about, I'm thinking that the next thing, I'm hoping to open up a new project on uh, pseudoscience and the, uh, um, particularly as a, as a historical project, um, the emergence of the term pseudoscience, but also uh, the emergence of the category of 
you know, natural science um, by means of things like alchemy and astrology and witchcraft. And so I'd, you know, love to hear from anybody who's got thoughts about those particular categories. That's fantastic. I, I'm, I'm excited about that. Cool. Yeah, me too. All right, both. Cool. Cool. Thanks, Thanks again. See you soon. Bye. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Interrupted, the West Art Institute podcast. If you would like to learn more about the West Art Institute or become a member, visit weststarinstitute.org. Interrupted is produced by Jordan Miller and Matthew Baker. We hope you'll join us again next time.